Welcome to another Trump Watch Sussex podcast. I have with me today two colleagues and professors at Sussex University. I have Stephen Berman, Professor Stephen Berman, who's a, who's a professor in American politics and history, and Professor Clive, Web, Clive Webb, who's a professor of American history. And we're going to talk about um, foreign policy and Donald Trump today, sitting here in a, in a cubicle on a blazing July afternoon in Brighton, sweating away, considering what's been going on in the recent past in uh, 2018. And uh, I just wanted to start off as a, a kind of gambit, because uh, yesterday uh, Mike Pompeo was uh, attending a, st- a, state, a Senate hearing uh, and being quizzed over events in Helsinki. And Bob Menendez, the Democrat, said to him, uh, quote, if President Obama did what President Trump did in Helsinki, I'd be peeling you, Mike Pompeo, off the Capitol ceiling. And there seemed to be a real truth in what he was saying there. And it made me think, and it's a question to my two guests, how does Donald Trump get away with this? Well, Trump is the creator of a postmodern world in which there is no such thing as an absolute truth. His constant rewriting of immediate history um, is crucial. I mean, what he does is, you know, he might make an an egregious uh, faux pas, then he'll deny that uh, he made it, uh, and he'll move on to the next thing very quickly thereafter. So because he's constantly on the move, I think he's one step ahead of the press. But secondly, you have to look at at his electoral base. And the, the truth is, you know, that they are willing to believe him when he dissembles in the way that he does, partly because of their um, fairly narrow reliance on certain news media, such as Fox News, which is an almost uh, uh, always loyal um, supporter of the president, although it did um, take exception um, to his position uh, at Helsinki. Um, And also the fact that in the case of foreign policy, I think that most of the people who voted for Donald Trump don't actually care. It's not a priority for them. Um, The economy is by far and away the most important issue that they face, and they are committed to seeing Trump introduce policies that will improve the economy, bring uh, uh, new jobs for the workforce, and um, revive ailing uh, sectors of of industry. So his idea of nationalism is, is very much inward-facing. It's not about America in the world. He's not interested in America in the world. That's not how he's, his supporters don't care about the world. Is that what we're saying? Well, very often I think what they're motivated by is a resentment of, the, of America's role in the world, the feeling that America has taken on a lot of burdens, whether financial or otherwise, um, uh, but has been abused. And when we see activities in the United Nations and so on, withdrawn from the Human Rights Council because they feel that we set up these kinds of organizations and everybody else, every other country in the world uses them to abuse us. Um, and we don't want to take that anymore. And they, he is focused particularly on trade and imbalances in trade. And there's resentment that uh, what is perceived to be loss of jobs to, to international trade, unfair tariffs and so on. So it plays into the dis- sense of resentment that uh, mot- seems to motivate his base both in economic terms and, uh, unfortunately, mm. in cultural terms as well. So why did he bother with North Korea if, uh, if, he's, if, if this is a sort of, this would be a very strange and distant kind of set of events for his 
electorate, his, his constituency, wouldn't it? If, if they're so concerned really with the economy and just what was happening tomorrow, why is he bothering with these these grand gestures on the world stage? Well, I don't think there's any choice. There is domestic politics, and he has to demonstrate his activities in foreign policy through the prism of this domestic politics, so mm. the, the focus on trade, and as we've already mentioned. But America is too involved still in the world to be able to say that we're not going to get involved uh, or we're simply going to withdraw. The, the idea of isolationism, which, as Clive can tell us, um, has been prominent at various parts in, in times in American history, where beyond that sort of stage, America can't disengage. It's a question of what form of engagement it takes yeah. and what kind of issues it um, engages with. Now, one of the things, if we go back to the Putin summit, we don't actually know what was said, of course, because uh, there were only two of them and a couple of translators in the room. But one of the things that's been reported in the press is that a deal was done on the Middle East, for example. So Trump sees in the Middle East, in Syria specifically, now the real threat in the Middle East is Iran. So he is, it, it is said, has m made the deal with Putin that they would recognize the fait accompli of Russian influence in Syria and um, the, the continuing role for Assad and would make common cause with the Russians and with the Israelis in order to drive the Iranians out of Syria. Well, if he's doing something like that, that's not something that's spoken of publicly, but it is classic international politics. That is, you, you know, getting your friends uh, to defeat your bigger enemies and reflecting the priorities that the, the U.S. has in the Middle East. So that would be conventional politics, but of course it is dressed up in the most extraordinary way of doing things. So having individual meetings with no preparation and relying on this sort of personal charisma that he seems to think he can run international relations through, that is all very strange and very unusual. But if the substance is making a deal on the Middle East to overcome some of the difficulties, then it's conventional international politics. So this is politics as usual, hidden behind something quite strange. Would you uh, care to think about that one, Clive? Uh, going back to your point about uh, it being kind of postmodern presidency and him being a postmodern figure. Well, I think there's something strange is, is the president himself. Um, the issue with North Korea seems to focus to a great deal around... Uh, him, you know, towards uh, Trump's own sense of himself as, a, as an almost messianic figure um, who can accomplish a significant um, uh, achievement um, towards global peace and certainly uh, protect the United States from um, any act of aggression from the, the North Koreans. Um, you know, all the talk about uh, Trump um, being a possible um, recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize um, before he had even gone to North Korea, something that he himself was happy to talk up, is indicative of, of the way that uh, the whole process seemed to appeal to his ego. It seemed to be a very personal issue for him in that sense, rather than um, something that had um, particularly any greater substance. Um, it was a way for him to demonstrate, or so he thought, on the world stage, you know, his, his prowess, um, his statesmanlike um, uh, personality uh, and so forth. So, so I think all of that has has some bearing on it. Um, you know, it's it's wanting to be seen um, mm. as a, as a heroic figure. It does seem strange to me that uh, Putin is is a figure of you know synonymous with destabilization and and, and trying to disrupt the events of uh, liberal democracy elsewhere. And how how odd it is to be pallying up to someone like this. Uh, even though un that there is an underlying level of, you know, of, of, of sense, a diplomatic sense about that, and thinking about foreign policy in a more real political way, surely there are still there are kind of inherent contradictions in as much as 
you know, what does Putin want in the end? Is he really is he really someone that's safe to play ball with in that in that sense? You know, the incursions into Eastern Europe are so so blatant and they seem so dangerous and and, and to capitulate to any of that seems so so incredibly dangerous. I, I, it seems amazing to me. Does it seem amazing to you, Clive? Well, what I think is just to, just to to roll back a, a little from what Steve was saying, um, and where I think Trump is an aberration is Steve's absolutely right that um, uh, seeking rapprochement with the Russians is uh, something that previous presidents have done in the 1970s and the 1980s. So Trump represents historical continuity in that regard, but he also represents historical discontinuity in the sense that he has trashed his allies in the process of seeking uh, closer relations with the Russians. I mean, before he came to Europe um, uh, and, and then, you know, and on, on to uh, his visit to uh, to Britain um, specifically, he stated that he believed his uh, summit meeting with, with Putin would be perhaps the most amenable um, of the of the meetings that he was going to engage in. Um, and he's been exceptionally rude and aggressive um, towards the EU. Angela Merkel uh, in particular has been the recipient of all kinds of abuse, the imposition of trade tariffs, um, the trashing of Theresa May's Brexit strategy and so forth. Um, and so in that sense, there's something, you know, it's not a case of Bringing, just bringing Russia into the fold, as it were, saying that they should be readmitted to the G8, for example, but alienating traditional allies at the same time. So there is something different about what has been going on recently. But there's also, again, some history here. Trump in 1987 took out a full-page ad in the New York Times, and the two things that he talked about there in, in relation to foreign policy were trade issues, mm. which we know he's still concerned about, and the alliance system. And it wasn't just a matter of who pays for what. It went a little bit beyond that. He did actually question many of the alliances, and this is in 1987. He's been saying this sort of thing mm. forever. He was a Democrat, though, wasn't he? In uh, he's, he's, he's flipped <laughs> and flopped. Um, yeah. But I suppose that, to me, the, the greatest significance is this, is that in the period of great American dominance in the post-war world, the alliance system has been the method by which America has extended its leverage. Now, you can argue that many of the allies, including Britain, have benefited from that, that, those relationships as well, those alliances, but through NATO and through a whole series of alliances. Now, that we take for granted, as it were, because that was the means by which the United States, together with international institutions, exercised its power in the world. But it's not necessarily uh, an historical given. We have to bear in mind, for example, that China has no allies. China doesn't do alliances. Russia doesn't do alliances unless you think the Soviet Empire is a system of alliances. Other countries don't do alliances. What they do is pursue national interest and engage on a bilateral or sometimes a multilateral, a complicated chess game. Yeah. But the system of alliances was a very particular historical thing, and it's under threat at the moment, and he's somebody who doesn't really believe in it. I, I'm quite sure from all that he said since 1987 that he doesn't really believe that the alliance system is the most effective way to pursue American interests and hence America first because yeah, that is actually a much more individual, nationalistic way of doing things. Which is something quite worrying, I think, for Europe and the EU because uh, if America turns away into in another direction for whatever reason, some of the things that you're talking about, I wonder where that leave, leaves us. I, you know, the NATO... <laughs> You know, the NATO NATO is there for a reason. Of course, Trump has been questioning that in various in various ways. 
I think that yeah, we're talking about a real shift in world order. If that if that were to happen, if that kind of break between between Western Europe or Europe now, you can't mm. even say Western mm. Europe, can you? Mm. And the U.S. Uh, were to happen in the way that you describe. I mean, Clive, I know you've been thinking a lot about, in particular, the relationship between Britain and the U.S. In this respect, I guess this talks directly to the kind of research that you've been doing. Well, um, I mean, Trump, you know, from the outset has, has said that he uh, would potentially withdraw the United States from NATO. Uh, he has, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's taken issue with Article 5, the notion um, of collective security that a strike against one member of NATO would be deemed a strike against all. Um, and there would be, um, you know, uh, unified um, retaliation um, by NATO in those circumstances. Which is the fundamental building block of the alliance, isn't it? Yeah. So, so you know, if if the United States were to you know withdraw from NATO, which I still think is a long way off. I mean, one one thing that's worth bearing in mind that you know, although Trump's rhetoric has been um, more incendiary and combative, um, the uh, the argument that other countries need to increase um, their contribution to defense spending um, and uh, to NATO specifically is something that previous presidents have also said. Barack Obama uh, pushed the same line um, before Trump. So there's a, there's, a, there's a consistency and a continuity here. Um, but there's been a greater sense of alarmism simply, I think, because Trump has pushed that line of argument much harder um, than has previously been the case and raised genuine existential concerns about the future of of NATO and there's no doubt that uh, uh, that a that a Europe that is already um, in considerable disarray uh, at the moment with the the rise of uh, you know an insurgent uh, populist right um, uh, brexit uh, and other fault lines um, that that if NATO is left without American support then then they're you know it will fundamentally reorder the nature of global politics. I think we are in that process myself, from my own view. It's a long-term process, as Clive says, there's not an immediate threat to NATO. But he sees, when America was extremely dominant in the post-war post world, it could carry, as it were, the burdens of an alliance system. It provided security, it provided the dollar to finance free trade, it provided all these global goods, the common goods. And it could afford to do so without mm. compromising its own national interests. It was its national interest, in well, fact. In fact, mm. they merged together very yeah. well. It was a way of extending its own national interest. Yeah, yeah. No, the point is that America was so dominant that it could do both at the same time. Those days are past. The idea that America can carry, as it were, most of the world through the alliance system are gone. Now, in those days, America was a very extraordinary country, a unique country. Now it is becoming a more ordinary country. Mm. It's still the most powerful country in the world on, on a number of and, measures. And the richest, I believe. And the richest. Yeah. But nonetheless, it is still a normal, an ordinary country. And ordinary countries do not behave in the way that America has behaved through much of the post-war era as a hegemonic power that takes responsibility for the security of a very, very significant part of the world. So, but my question would be, does, does this then go beyond Trump? Is this a sort of incipient process that uh, he just happens to be someone who's accelerating or can see and is accelerating and therefore is, has a more realistic vision than perhaps we've been giving him credit for? I think, it, I think that even after Trump, um, there will be, if not Trumpism, because that will be so associated with him, the, the general's direction of policy 
is moving in that direction because the balance of power in the world, the relationship between a lot of emerging powers and China and Russia and the relative weakness of the United States compared to previous eras is such that it will change international politics and it will change American foreign policy in a direction that is not um, unfamiliar to what we're seeing at the moment. Although quite difficult to predict and anticipate in, in many ways, I, I can't really imagine that kind of a world, which goes to show really how much we've been, you know, this is the world we were born into and that we have become so used to, it's really hard to imagine what the other side of that might be, and different kinds of influences and, and other dominant powers with other, with other needs. As well, it were. That, that's why we're living in such a grave time, as Henry Kissinger said, <laughs> only this week, <laughs> because we're Kissinger. moving from a system that we were quite familiar with, and that was dangerous enough, especially during the Cold War, particularly when Kissinger was in charge of these things. Um, and we're moving into a new era that nobody knows the answer to that, Doug. It's very uh, imbalanced. He, Kissinger himself would look back to the Congress of Vienna in the 19th century and see the balance of power working, and we'll do that on a global scale, perhaps. But when you have a character like Trump, an unpredictable, a disruptive character like Trump, in the most powerful office in the world, then things could clearly go wrong, and the transition from that, this, whatever the old order, however you describe the old order, to this new sense is, is, is a very dangerous transition. Obama tried a very different tactic. He was coping with the same problems, but yeah. he tried it through accommodation, through increased partnerships, by trying to be more inclusive in the world, and yes, recognizing the diminution of American power, but bringing in sympathetic allies, enhancing the allied mm. system, if anything, Trump has gone the other way. And the reason he's been able to is because he can capitalize on the resentment that most Americans feel that alliances are a burden to them and not a benefit. I don't know what Steve thinks about, uh, about this, but but Trump to me seems to be almost uh, a reversion to 19th century international politics, you know, with the uh, the uh, preeminence of the nation state. Um, so, uh, you know, and, you know, and of course, it's that intense nationalistic competition that brought about two world wars in which the creation of the post-war liberal international order was an attempt to prevent ever happening again. So in that sense, Trump seems to be reverting um, to, an, uh, you know, what we thought was uh, a lost you know, closed era uh, of the past, um, um, you know, that had brought about, um, you know, truly apocalyptic uh, uh, a destruction. Um, and, uh, and, and that's where we seem to be headed again. So it looks like the sort of, you know, the second half of the 21st century could in some respects look more like the 19th. Yeah. Not, not to be facile about this, but one of the arguments is that you have the Congress of Vienna, which comes after a period of wars, then you get a period of stability for the best part of a century based on balances of power, and then that all breaks down at the beginning of the 20th century. It's then replaced by what Clive has just described, and now we're reverting, and so we go back to another cycle, mm. and we all know that what happened to the, the 19th century cycle didn't last. It's very dangerous. But it's, it's, it's interesting to me to hear you say that, because it's, it's hard to imagine that we are living in a kind of post-nation-state kind of world, but it doesn't help explain things like America first, it does explain things like that great sort of trope of the nation that, that Trump has been appealing to, but it also I guess is very important and leads us on fairly straightforwardly to another issue of nation and nationalism and uh, sense of nation, which is Brexit and the relationship between uh, the British government and Trump over this particular you know, the, the, the issue of our day, I suppose, and that's something that I think Clive has been thinking about as well. I have been thinking long and hard about these <laughs> like issues. Like everybody else, every <laughs> dinner party conversation <laughs> in you know, the last. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we, we clearly don't go to the same dinner, dinner parties. Um, the we should come. <laughs> <laughs> I invite you to come. 
I mean, I think that the, uh, the, 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 the Brexit situation has profoundly complicated uh, the relationship between Britain and the United States. Um, you know, because, uh, you know, on the one hand, I mean, I think essentially the, 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 the May government finds itself between a rock and a hard place on, on these matters. Um, uh, Britain is going to withdraw from the EU. Um, and is in search of a lucrative trade deal with the United States in order to um, address uh, the economic fallout uh, of Brexit. So on the one hand, um, there's a, a desperate desire um, to, uh, you know, to, to maintain strong, close relations um, with the administration in Washington despite all of the... Uh, the abuse that is inflicted uh, from uh, from the White House, um, but at the same time, um, Britain's departure from the EU will mean it will lose one of its fundamental strategic uh, uh, roles that have made it such a political asset to the United States, and that is that it's acted as a bridgehead between the United States and continental Europe. Uh, time and again, it has been there as a, it's been a, 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 a platform um, for the selling of American policy to the rest of Europe. And to pull out of the EU means that that brokering role, um, you know, as a negotiator on behalf of Washington that, uh, that Britain has performed for so long will be lost. And therefore, there's inevitably going to be a diminution in terms of Britain's um, Usefulness to the United States, and ultimately, ultimately, the Anglo-American relationship is based on, you know, on the usefulness of each country to one another. So, have we been really misunderstanding the special relationship because it wasn't necessarily all about us? There was, a, you know, there were other attractions to to that relationship which have not really been spoken about, and it's something that you're trying to draw to our attention. Yeah, there's a quid pro quo with the special relationship. I mean, for, if you take away all the rhetoric about the, um, you know, about the shared historical and cultural uh, uh, identity and values um, of the two nations, then you've got to look at um, in a much more hard-headed way. You know, the shared intelligence, um, the shared military operations between the two countries, trade um, have been important. But not, you know, intelligence perhaps is the is the is the, the the genuinely unique aspect of the special relationship. What makes it special, so to speak? Um, As in spies, intelligence. Yeah, intelligence gathering. Um, you know that that's been crucial ever since 1947 when it became uh, formalised. There's a thing that I don't think people would necessarily know about that. That's that's the kind of the basis of the special relationship is something like that. But it's, it's, it's more than that, though. You can generalize beyond that uh, to elaborate on what Clive's saying. It's, we are a medium-sized power. UK is a medium-sized power and has been a medium-sized power for a long time. The objective diplomacy of any country's foreign policy is to exercise leverage, to exercise influence, to get others in the world, other countries, other institutions, to do the things that you want. We have commonality, should we say, with the United States. We don't want to exaggerate this stuff about values and shared culture and all that sort of thing. But nonetheless, it is a rational thing for a country of a middle-ranking power to hitch itself, if it has the capacity to do so, for historical reasons and for, for all the other kinds of reasons that Clive's mentioned, to hitch yourself to the most powerful country in the world. 
and sort of gain more leverage that way, not necessarily directly through influencing American policy, but by pursuing similar policies and following their lead. Yeah. And it sounds sometimes like, you know, where the, Amer the Americans poodle, it can seem, we can seem embarrassed by some of the things that have to be done to maintain that relationship, but it is very well grounded in UK national interest. But as Kai says, one of the basic planks of that relationship and why we were useful to the United States or the UK was useful to the United States was the relationship with Europe. Now that that's taken away, we have to become logically closer in, in, still to the United States because we can't work, exercise our influence through Europe. So we can't exercise our influences in an individual country because we're a medium-sized power. So we will maximize our leverage by being even closer to the United States, almost irrespective of how many embarrassing moments uh, the Prime Minister has to go through in order to uh, affect that policy. Like the hand-holding, for example. Exactly. Partly this is going to be about, about personalities. Um, we don't know, of course, whether um, Donald Trump will, will, will uh, have two terms in office uh, or not at this stage. Um, but the underlying sort of mechanics of government um, and the sort of broader kind of sentiment between um, the two nations, I think, will be conducive to, to maintaining some degree uh, of alliance, although you know Trump does complicate matters in all sorts of ways. There are fundamental problems here. Um, there's, there's a good possibility of a trade deal. It suits both parties. It's quite a narrow thing. There aren't very many tariffs between us and the United States anyway. It's not mm. going to be a very well, we're big a deal. Big consumer of American goods as well, aren't we? Yeah, so. it, it works both ways. We are. We do have a lot of mutual investment and so on. So that you know those sort of things can carry on. But the basic point to return to my notion of America, the UK as a middle-sized power. What our foreign policy is based on is what the so-called rubies, the rules-based international order. Middle-ranking middle powers can't make the world. They have to take the rules, and so they want the rules to be sympathetic. And if they're created by the Americans, as they have been for most of the post-World War world, that's sympathetic to the UK. We need alliances. We need cooperative activity and so on. That's what middle-ranking powers have to do. They have to get together. Now, that is in fundamental tension with an America first policy, a nationalistic policy. That's what the Americans used to, there didn't used to be a contradiction. The rules-based international order, to put this crudely, was established by the United States, mm. and we were willing partners in that because it furthered our interests. Now, as under the global Britain kind of policy, as we remove ourselves from Europe, we need that international order as a middle-ranking power standing alone mm. more than we have ever done it, and that's based on free trade, the international order, international institutions and security alliances, and so on, and that's what Trump is assuming and potentially there is a fundamental conflict between the two things. Where we, we need a rules-based international order and his purpose is to disrupt it. And that, over time that could become uh, way all these other cultural factors. And that's a powerful contradiction. That's a powerful problem. I mean, although uh, if he comes up with his own particular set of rules, do we have to follow those? Do, is that how it goes? And it doesn't really matter how, how they might be rather different to how things have been. We just have to do it because this is how a, a middle-order power works. I think we'll be faced with a very difficult choice because I, I don't have a great deal of confidence in the substance behind the idea of Global Britain, which is the rationale, you know, the, the label that is put on our policy now. Mm. Global Britain, us engaging, the UK engaging with the rest of the world is fine, but we won't have very much leverage. We'll be a very marginal element of the global world. And so we will need to engage 
ally ourselves with somebody and some country and a more powerful country it's not going to be the eu as an international actor it's not going to be any other major powers it's only going to be the us but as, as i say if that means following america's national interests nationalist in- interests that will involve a lot of compromises for the uk there's no there's a great disparity in these two in this deal it's not very good to have a deal with someone who's it's, so it's the transactionalism powerful. we have to do over and over again it's not it's, it will be with trump what have you done for me lately yeah. And one of the problems that we have there, in my view, is our military capacity. Because it was Iraq war, that, that era, Afghan war, Britain had a more or less unique role to play because we were willing to go shoulder to shoulder to put more troops than everybody else in. Our performance, the performance of UK troops, this is not an adverse reflection on the troops, but on the financing and the funding and the, uh, the capabilities that they had, were deployed, uh, reduced, minimized our role in the eyes of the American military. Yeah. We do not have the kind of purchase, military security purchase, that we used to have. And that's what will count. If push comes to shove with, with Trump in, in the Middle East, in the South China Sea, wherever it might be, what can you do for me? How can you help? And I'm afraid British military capabilities are f- severely in question, despite the 2% that we, uh, of our GDP that we spend, uh, our military capabilities relative to other countries and relative to the U.S., and in light of our recent performance, I'm afraid it has diminished our value to the United States quite considerably. And I imagine it would be quite politically difficult to put more money into British defence you know, in the kind of age of austerity for us. But if not us, then who? Well, it, who does, who does they would, America they would, turn to? Exactly. Nobody. That's the point. That they, He won't rely on others. Uh, he's not going to rely on the Europeans from the way he's talked about them. He will no longer rely. I don't think, that, irrespective of whether we'd left Europe or not, the diminution in British capabilities was there for all to see, I'm afraid, in, in action. And so that would have happened anyway, I'm afraid. Mm. Um, but it is quite, if you notice in the press recently, you know, it was floated by, by number 10, presumably, where Theresa May was quoted as saying, do we need to be a tier one military power? Right. We are coming very, very close to the point where we are no longer a major international public, uh, security player uh, relative to the growing power of China and of India and other countries. We will be, if we become marginal on that score, yeah. uh, although we have the fourth, fifth biggest uh, army in the world and so on, military forces in the world, we're declining in that respect. And when you add that to the transactionalism of Trump's approach, our value to him, as I say, diminishes, and that could become a real difficulty in, in the future. Yeah, it could. For any British Prime Minister, that's a very difficult decision to try to make and a difficult argument to make, and not a very popular one, I don't think, probably at home. We've talked a lot about um, the relationship of our country, and um, understandably, to, to, to Trump and to America and to, the, and to that future. Are there any other kind of key parts of uh, the Trump foreign, foreign policy that we should think about you know, as before we wrap up? I think that one of the issues that is a cause for most concern is the values-free approach to uh, foreign policy that Trump has taken where, you know, I mean, for all of the, for although problematic in all sorts of respects, at least at a rhetorical level, the United States has taken a firm moral position on human rights um, for the last 40 years or so, ever since Jimmy Carter um, delivered his inaugural address in 1977 and made human rights an integral component of American foreign policy. And Trump is With not interested. Problems, Absolutely. Yeah. There, oh, there are all sorts of problems. I mean, this is what I'm suggesting. And it's clear that, you know, if you look at his. Uh, interactions with, um, you know, with North Korea, for example, um, where he was asked repeatedly whether or not he had 
pursued the issue of you know of the appalling human rights record in that in that country mm. uh he was entirely evasive uh, about the, about that he's not interested um in human rights at all um now of course there are there's all sorts of problems with you know with uh the united states um espousing human rights as a means to try to you know democratize by force other nations and we've seen um how how badly wrong that has has gone um you know for instance in in iraq and elsewhere um you know the militarization of human rights is a is a is a deeply problematic and and mm-hmm. disturbing concept yeah, weaponization of democracy as well but the idea yeah. the idea that that you know in terms of this transactional presidency that 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 you know morality is not really a part of it um is 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 one of the most alarming developments i think of the, of the me, administration is, i would cite all of that in support of my argument about the diminution of american power that what was characteristic yeah. of a hegemonic power was that it was precisely as Clive was just describing mm-hmm. for all the problems that were associated with that now it no longer even espouses even aspires to those things and my final comment would be more geopolitical which is the thing we haven't talked much about is china because China is a different kind of challenge than other kinds of countries. To me, most most people who view these things have seen Russia as a regional power for a long time. It's getting a lot of focus. It's a weak economy. It's a relatively weak society that's seeking respect, but has regional capabilities. China is aspiring to have global capabilities. It is also aspiring to replace the American-led world order, of which human rights was an essential component, with a different kind of international order. And it's building on the resentment of other powers that that they have had towards the American system, where human rights was often seen as a cover for promoting American narrow interests. So there is a lot of receptivity towards China. I'm not suggesting for a minute that China is yet in a position to establish a Chinese-led hegemonic world order by any means. But it is a a scale of challenge, a kind of challenge, that is quite unique and one that the United States hasn't faced before. And they use financialization as one of their key sort of means, don't they? Well, now it's financial, it's trade and so on. Let's see what happens in the South China Sea. At some point, push is going to come to shove there because... Controlling the seas, controlling the high seas, control, controlling the maritime channels is absolutely vital. And if the Chinese go on insisting on controlling that whole area of sea in the Indo-Pacific region, then we are going to end up in some very d- deep waters, shall we say. I think just to, to my final point, Doug, would be you know to, to circle back to a comment that Steve made much earlier, which is we are seeing the beginning of the end of the of the post-war liberal international order well, uh, uh you know that the, the uh, uh you can hear the the the, the, the bells clanging <laughs> yeah. uh sonorously in the background um you know uh, for 70 years the united states has been um the global policeman and donald trump's now kind of throwing in the badge is it history repeating itself as fast, I wonder, as we go down the last kind of few circles? There'll, there'll be nothing funny about this if it goes yeah. wrong. It's too grave, as Kissinger, again, to repeat, has said. It is very grave, I think, and very concerning. It should be to most of us. Well, I wish I'd never asked the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Both Give us a minute and we'll think of something off the well, well, <laughs> very, very illuminating. Thank you very much, both of you, for your contribution. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sign off now and go and put my head in the oven. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks.